0: Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. There's a good amount of poetry in the Bible. Does anybody happen to know uh, where we'd find the longest poem in the Bible? Anybody know what it is? In the Psalms. Which Psalm is the longest? 119, right? It's uh, been read a few chunks of it already in this service, actually. It's an emotional psalm. It's a passionate psalm. It's got some of the language, we've actually already heard it today, that uh, reminds me of um, some teenage love poems, okay? So some examples just from what we've heard today. I'm crying for you, yearning for you, longing for you. That language was used. I die without you, even, we heard in one of the scriptures that was read. Um, but what's fascinating about that longest poem in the Bible, that love poem that sounds even desperate and heartsick at times, um, is who it's written to, who the subject of that poem is. Anybody happen to catch who the subject of that poem was? Scripture, the Bible, yeah. The psalmist is writing to the Bible in this flowery, passionate language. I wonder how many of us have ever felt so overcome with passionate love for the Bible that we've just couldn't help but go out in the hammock with a pen and a notebook and write down a poem to the Bible, right? Probably not many of us. Um, And there are reasons, maybe different reasons for each of us for why that isn't normally how we feel. Maybe for you, it's that, you know, the Bible is just confusing, Maybe for you it's the Bible's been misused. I've seen it, uh, I've seen it harm people. Maybe for you it's, I, you know, there's so many interpretations out there. People disagree on how to read it, so it's just overwhelming to even start. Uh, maybe for you it's these passages that seem culturally backward and so they're embarrassing that they're in there. Maybe for you it's just boring or maybe because the worst kind of people you know are the kind of people who have the highest opinion of the Bible. Lots of different reasons why people don't feel overwhelmed with love for the Bible, at least on an everyday basis. Maybe for you, Um, you would say, many people feel this way. You know, my problem isn't with Jesus. You know, I would write a love poem to Jesus. I love Jesus. It's just the Bible that I don't feel so passionate about. If that's kind of where you're at this morning... um, You love Jesus, or at least have positive regard for Jesus, but not so much for the Bible. Uh, This sermon is particularly geared with you in mind, and let's be honest, we're all there from time to time. We all feel uh, a lack of love for the Bible sometimes, Um, but we're in this Marks of a Disciple series right now, and it's brought us to a week in which we're talking about being grounded in Scripture. So this series started a few weeks back. Um, It's Uh, a series in which we're looking at what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus who's forever becoming more like him. It's not the makings of a disciple as though you could take these 11 things we're laying out and do them and then thus become a disciple, right? This is, if you've already become a disciple, if you already placed your faith in Jesus and believe that you are saved by the work of Jesus and his work alone— Scripture teaches that there's some evidence, some marks, some distinguishing characteristics of someone who's truly been saved, someone who truly has faith in Christ, who truly is a disciple. So, week one, we uh, looked at uh, the first mark of a disciple. We have these concentric circles, right? So the innermost ring, we said, was the upward dimension, and we said that a disciple joyfully submits to Christ. And then in week two, we moved to that second ring, which we're calling the inward dimension, and we looked at Mark number two, that a disciple walks by the Spirit. And that brings us to today, where we're looking at Mark number three of a disciple, that a disciple is grounded in Scripture. So, um, in a sermon about the Bible, uh, I'm not actually today going to be able to talk about probably the most important things there are to say about the Bible, if I was just starting from scratch. Uh, this isn't going to be thorough. There's going to be some Scriptures that I have to just allude to and let you chase down on your own later on, but I have one kind of specific goal today, in in, in as much as it fits in our series, um, and it's this. I want to make the case today that if we're disciples of Jesus, his view of Scripture will increasingly become our view of Scripture. That's the simple point that I want to make about Scripture today. That if we're these intentional followers of Jesus, forever becoming more like him, that should extend to his view of Scripture, and we should be increasingly wanting to make our view of Scripture line up Uh, With his. And of course, that raises the question, what was Jesus' view of Scripture? So that's what we'll be unfolding today. I want to unfold it in three ways. One, by looking at the role of Scripture in Jesus' life. Two, the nature of Scripture in Jesus' understanding. And third, I just want to address three potential objections that there might be, Uh, and then we'll close out. There is an outline in your bulletin that's a little bit more filled out than usual to help you kind of follow along, because we're going to cover a lot of ground today. Um, So let's jump in with the role of Scripture in Jesus' life. Uh, First, when Jesus is tempted, he um, responds with Scripture. Jesus' most famous temptation, you can find in Matthew 4, Mark 1, or Luke 4. You can look that up um, on your own. But Jesus, in this most famous temptation in the wilderness, faces the devil himself, who is going to try to draw him off track from the mission that he's on. And each time the devil tries to entice Jesus whether it's um, to serve himself or trying to entice him to gain power, earthly power, or to try to uh, entice him to test God, Jesus quotes Scripture in response to explain why he won't take the bait. When Jesus is challenged, he argues from Scripture. So we have several examples in the Gospels of times when people disagreed with Jesus, questioned him, right? Questioned his teachings. And ordinarily, he doesn't just merely appeal to logic or to reason. And he doesn't even do what we might expect him to do, which is to say, hey, listen, I'm the son of God, so I'm laying down something new here, and y'all better listen. Ordinarily, what he says is he makes a case from the Hebrew Scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, his Bible and the Bible that his opponents were reading, Um, and he makes his argument that way. A, A scripture to write down to take a look at on your own when you go home is John chapter 10, verses 34 to 36, along these lines. There's obviously many, many examples of Jesus responding with scripture when he's challenged. But this one, John 10, 34 to 36, is particularly notable, I think, because in it, you'll see there that Jesus can quote from a relatively obscure psalm And he can focus on just one word from that psalm to make his whole case. And that's the defense that he makes uh, for his claiming to be the Son of God. One word from one relatively seemingly obscure psalm. He can go there and make that case. And then at the end of it, or right in the middle of it actually, he uh, lays down the statement, and the scripture cannot be broken. As though to say, you know it, my opponents, and I know it. If Scripture says it, then that settles it. So when Jesus is tempted, he responds with Scripture. When he's challenged, he argues from Scripture. And when he's suffering, he quotes Scripture. Uh, I want you to imagine for a moment, if we can, what it would be like to experience crucifixion on a Roman cross. There, in Jesus' greatest moment of suffering. For him, he had a crown of thorns pressed on his brow. He's being suspended to the cross by... Nails that have been driven through his wrists and through his feet. Um, He's suffocating, right? And then in order to get some air in his lungs, he has to pull himself up on the nails in order to let oxygen fill his lungs for a moment until his muscles give out and he has to let down again for a while um, over and over again until you suffocate, right? One of the most... uh, horrific forms of torture that any civilization on earth has ever thought up. Um, But when you are experiencing crucifixion, the real you is going to come out. It can't help but come out. Whatever is at the deepest core of your being, in that moment, that's going to come spilling out of you. There's no more grandstanding. There's no more putting on a show for the crowds, right? Who are you in that moment is going to come out. And what is it for Jesus? As he's hanging on the cross breathing his last breaths? Well, it's the first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then a little while later, it's Psalm 31 5. Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. In other words, when Jesus is in his moment of greatest anguish in his life, it's the Bible that comes spilling out of him. I think that's the takeaway for us on this whole first point of the role of Scripture on Jesus' life. That Jesus was so full of Scripture that when temptation or challenge or suffering pressed in on him, Scripture is what spilled out. Kind of like, you know, I had a big mosquito on my arm the other day, really fat one, and I didn't quite get a clean smack on it, but it didn't even matter because it was so engorged. Sorry, this is kind of gross for morning before lunchtime that I only got a little bit of it and there's just blood everywhere I'm cleaning up, right? Jesus was so full of Scripture because he had spent so much time soaking in it, getting it down deep inside of him and uh, learning it and energy studying it that even the smallest poke to Jesus and Scripture couldn't help but spill out. The question is, what about you and me? When we're poked by the circumstances of life, what is it that comes spilling out? And probably the answer to that question has something to do with how we spend our time, our free time, right? Um, If we're the sort of people who get provoked and become angry, respond with anger, or if we're the sort of people who get depressed and in response we go to pornography, or if we're the sort of people who get challenged on something and we respond with apathy, it could be because... Instead of filling our minds up with God's voice from the scriptures, we're filling our minds with other things. Uh, mindless YouTube videos or lustful thoughts or uh, entertainment that isn't beneficial in any way to us. Right? What if what if at norsub we increasingly became a people who were so saturating ourselves in the scriptures, reading, memorizing, speaking it to one another, that when we got poked by life's challenges, temptations, trials, that scripture is what came spilling out of us naturally. So that's the functional role that scripture played in Jesus's life. Um, Now we're going to turn to Jesus's words and take a look at what he understood in his own words, scripture to be. Um, so the first thing about the nature of Scripture and Jesus' understanding is that he believed that God wrote it all. And in that way, he was no different than uh, most faithful Jews in his day, all faithful Jewish people in the first century, that this book and what they had of it, the Hebrew Bible, what we would call the Old Testament, was God's word. And by that we mean, and they meant, that yes, there were human authors who wrote down the Scriptures, but humans weren't the primary authors of Scripture. There was a divine author, God himself, breathing into those writers to write down what they wrote down. Um, So Jesus can say many, many times, it is written, knowing that even his detractors would hear that and know that if God said it in his word, that had the highest authority in the conversation. But there's one particular place in which Jesus makes it really explicit his, how far he believes it goes that God wrote all of Scripture. And I think it's worth us looking at for a second. It's in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. What has just happened here is um, some of Jesus' detractors have come to him to test him, to ask him some questions about divorce. Hey, can, I, can anybody divorce anybody for any reason? And Jesus answers, not surprisingly, using Scripture. He says, well, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And on just a cursory reading, that doesn't seem that notable, right? Jesus is always quoting scripture. What's different here? But what is so notable about this, actually, is if you go back this week and take a look at Genesis 2, 24, this verse in its original context. If you go back and read that verse in the flow of Genesis 2, you'll see that in Genesis 2, that isn't a point of dialogue. In other words, that's not God said, therefore a man shall leave his father. That's just the the author of Genesis making a commentary on the story that he's telling. The author of Genesis tells the story and then says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But when Jesus reads Genesis 2, even the author of Genesis' commentary, outside of the dialogue, he says that was God speaking. In other words, for Jesus... To say, the author of Genesis says, or to say, God says, we're one and the same. No difference. God wrote the scriptures. He wrote the law. He wrote the history in the scriptures. He wrote the poetry in the scriptures, the prophecy in the scriptures. According to Jesus' teaching, he affirms all of those and the truth in them. And that's because the only way the word of God can go wrong in Jesus' mind is if God himself were wrong. God himself never goes wrong, so neither can his word. Uh, two more points about the nature of Scripture and Jesus' understanding. God wrote it all, and it all reaches its intended goal in Jesus. On these next two points, B and C here on your outline, we'll be looking at Matthew 5, 17 to 20. And that's the passage we're going to camp out on the most, so you can uh, feel free to open there if you'd like to. Uh, Matthew five seventeen to 20. Jesus thinks that all of Scripture— reaches its intended goal in himself, actually. So here's what it says in Matthew 5, 17. Toward the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. When he says the law and the prophets, he's talking about the whole Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, right? That's just a shorthand way of referring to it. And then he says, I've not come to abolish them, which isn't a surprise to us if we've read Jesus' teachings because he's frequently quoting the Old Testament and citing it affirmatively. But what's interesting is uh, what he said he did come to do. He could have said, think about the things he could have said. He could have said, I have not come to abolish the scriptures, but to keep them. He could have said, I didn't come to abolish the scriptures, but to emphasize them. Right? He, he could have said, uh, I didn't come to abolish the scriptures, but to teach them. Right? He didn't say any of those things. He said, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So we ask ourselves, well, what does it mean to what is Jesus claiming when he says, I've come to fulfill the scriptures? Unfortunately, right? Matthew uses that word fulfill more than uh. almost all the rest of the New Testament writers combined, and almost every single time Matthew uses that word fulfill, he uses it the same way. And uh, here's what he means when he's talking about fulfilling. Picture you've got X and Y, okay? If Y fulfills X, then X pointed to Y. So I'll say that again in different words. If something fulfills something else then the other thing was the pointer to it. So there's a time element involved. If Jesus is saying that I am the fulfillment of the Scriptures, I've come to fulfill them, then what he's saying is the Scriptures pointed ahead to me, pointed ahead in time to me, the one who would come and complete them, right? Um, I was the goal for which the Scriptures were intended, in other words. Um, There's massive implications to that. We could spend a whole series talking about that and unpacking what that means. It's an astounding claim. But for our purposes today, what we need to note is that if we want to start reading the Bible more and more like Jesus read the Bible, then when we read the Old Testament, the first half of our Bibles, then we'll be reading it as Jesus did. That its primary purpose was to point forward in time to Jesus. Now, it's obvious how that works when it comes to the prophecies in the Old Testament, right? Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Obvious how he fulfills that, right? What's maybe a little less obvious is how, what Jesus means when he says, actually, the law points forward to me. And by implication, the law and the prophets mean the whole Old Testament. The history points to him. The, the, poet, the poetic writings point to him. How do those things point to him? How do laws and statutes point to Jesus, But when we look closely at what's going on and we read the New Testament and how the disciples of Jesus understood this, we start to see some of how it works. All the regulations of the Passover, for example, those are laws, right? Statutes, regulations in the Old Testament that you have to do a certain prescribed way. They were all pointing forward to Jesus, our Passover lamb, which we can see in hindsight now, the one who was sacrificed in our place To die on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to face the wrath of God. Um, The history of the Old Testament, how could that be fulfilled in Jesus? Like the Exodus event, right? Surely that's not fulfilled in Jesus, but earlier in Matthew, he's already shown us that the Exodus was actually pointing ahead to Jesus' own Exodus, so to speak, from Egypt as he went there as a refugee, as a boy, and then came back to Israel, Even the Exodus event was pointing forward to him. We could go on and on with examples from the Old Testament, um, but this whole Old Testament, according to Jesus, pointed to him, its end goal and destination. Now, it's fashionable, actually, you may or may not know this, among uh, preachers and pastors, really around my generation, um, to be preaching Christ from all of the Bible. That's like a cool thing to do right now. So, and I think that sometimes it gets taken a little bit too far. Like I've heard somebody preach on the story of Rahab and the book of Joshua and the scarlet cord hanging out of her window, and that's the blood of Jesus. That's what the author intended, right? I think we can maybe take it a little bit too far sometimes. But I've been impressed in my study the last week or two on this passage that despite maybe people taking it too far, looking under every little symbol in the Old Testament for Jesus, we need to reckon with the fact that Jesus' own view— of the Hebrew Scriptures was that the goal of all of it was to point to him. There's one more piece here. Uh, If we just keep reading on in that Matthew 5 passage, verses 17 to 20, if we keep reading on from verse 17, we see one more piece that Jesus believed that all of the Bible is exactly what God wanted us to have. All of it was exactly what he wanted us to have. Take a look at uh, verse 18. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away not an iota not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished again he's talking about the whole old testament using the shorthand of law and he's using the words iota using uh, that's the word for the smallest letter in the hebrew scriptures the yod it just looks like a little hook it's just one quick stroke of your pen right he says not one of those letters, even the smallest one will pass away from what God wrote. Actually, not even a dot. So There's several Hebrew letters that are, looks very similar and they're just differentiated by a quick little pen stroke. He's saying not even one of those will pass away. And how long? Until the very end. Until the earth as we know it is gone. Until everything is said and done. Not one letter, not one pen stroke will be, uh, will be lost from what God wrote. Now think about what that means. If Every letter and every pen stroke in our Bibles is exactly what God wanted us to have, according to Jesus. How much more the teachings and the theology that is made up by those pen strokes and letters, right? Even the parts of it that are embarrassing to us. So this is a word to those of us who are embarrassed by some parts of Scripture that seem culturally backward, that we want to pretend aren't there, that we want to kind of ignore and push aside— um, Jesus wasn't so embarrassed by them. He said, even uh, not, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. That's exactly what God wanted us to have, right? And then he goes on to make sure we understand just how serious he is about it. He says, therefore, everyone who relaxes the least of one of these commandments, the least of them being maybe the least important or the least known or the most embarrassing, right? Whatever he means by least, he means even down to the last of them. If we relax them and teach others to do the same, we'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven, right? Unfortunately, there are many Christian teachers doing just this today, relaxing the least of these commandments and teaching others to do the same, right? Because we're embarrassed by certain parts of it. Um, And so we hear preachers say things like this. We need to keep in mind that the sexual ethics in the Bible, for example, come from a different time and place, and so those parts of it, we can't really go to the Bible for guidance in those areas of our life. Or uh, gender, gender roles. Uh, you know, the Bible uh, was written by people who weren't quite as advanced as we are. They, don't, they didn't know so much that we know. And so um, the Bible isn't really the place to go for direction on how to live out life as a man or woman in this world. Right? Relaxing the least of these commandments and teaching others to do the same. And that's the problem, I think, with the viewpoint um, that some of us might be enticed by, the viewpoint of, I love Jesus, but just not quite so much the Bible. Many people I care about that have that viewpoint, but I think we start to run into problems with our pursuit of Jesus But not pursuing the Bible, when we open up to Matthew 5 and we read through and we see the Jesus that we have affection for, the Jesus that we have these positive feelings for, actually had the highest view of the Bible possible. He thought that every single letter and pen stroke in it even was exactly what God wanted us to have. So we lose then our basis for putting Jesus' words up here and the rest of the Bible's words down here as if they can't be trusted because Jesus himself put all the words of the Bible as high as they could possibly be. So I think maybe we've seen in the second point that Jesus not only lived in such a way that showed the scriptures were his lifeblood, but he actually explained his view of the scriptures in such a way that showed that it was the highest view possible. And from Jesus' perspective, if the Bible says it, God says it. So to accuse the Bible of being wrong on some point is to accuse God of being wrong. If we're his disciples, we need to wrestle with that view of scripture and increasingly— Seek to make it our own. Now, I imagine, I've just tried to cover so much ground. I've had to cover it briefly. There may be some objections, questions about this. Please do text those in. Let me just address three objections that I know are common to a teaching like what I've just laid out from the scriptures in the last few minutes. Uh, Three objections, and I'll be done. Uh, One objection would be, hey, you're using the Bible to argue for the Bible. Um, Why am I supposed to believe? I don't believe the Bible in the first place, so it's not convincing to me. Um so yes we are doing that but as many philosophers have shown that's unavoidable really when it comes to discussions like this of matters of first principles right so let's say the bible isn't your ultimate let's say reason is your ultimate you can't make a case to me that reason should be my ultimate without appealing to reason right same with science if science is your ultimate you can't make a case to me that I should think science is ultimate without appealing to science and scientific evidence, right? We all have to do that at some point when it comes to what's our first foundational principle. We all have to appeal to that. If we didn't, if we appealed outside the Bible to make a case of the Bible, we'd be showing that the Bible actually isn't our foundation. It's that other thing that we appeal to that we think is more rock solid, right? So there's no way around it. We have to do that, but we do it as Christians because... Um, As you'll find, the Bible can't be disproven by reason or science. And so we're faced with the decision, how do we draw conclusions about God? We all have to draw conclusions about God, a God that is there or isn't there, a conclusion whether he's there or not. And even if we decide not to draw any conclusions about God, we drew the conclusion that we shouldn't draw any conclusions about God, right? So we all have to make conclusions about God. There's only two ways that we can draw that conclusion. Either God spoke— or we guess. That's the only way we can know about God. Only two ways that we can know about God. Either he spoke or we guess. Right? And what we've come to the conviction of here in the leadership at North Sub and what um, many in this room have come to the conclusion of is that we don't have to guess. We don't believe we have to guess because we believe that God spoke, revealed himself, let us know who he is in his word and we can go to this word as a reliable place to learn about him and to actually know him personally. Second objection, people with a high view of Scripture misuse the Bible. This is a common one, especially when you think about pastors here in America in the 17th and 18th century who were pointing to the Bible to justify slavery, right? Um, you think about um, the abuser who opens up the Bible and uh, tries to convince his battered wife from the Bible that she needs to stay with him, Right? And it sickens us, and so some of us have reacted to that by saying, you know, I'm not going to be a Bible person because I know what people with a high view of Scripture are like. Uh, They misuse it, they abuse it, they beat people over the head with it. No thanks, I don't want any of that. Of course, that's an understandable reaction, right? But we should remember that when the Bible has been misused in history and abused like that, in those unfortunate situations, the... Counter to that, the way that slavery, for example, was ended in America was led by other Christians with an equally high view of the Bible who um, were able to go to those people and say, actually, no, 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 this isn't actually what Scripture teaches. You've gotten it wrong. Here's what Scripture teaches. This isn't justified by our Bible, right? Um, So on final analysis, I guess what I'm saying is that the, the problem with these Bible thumpers that all of us feel icky about, is not that they had a high view of Scripture. Um, It actually may be that they had too low of a view of Scripture because equal with their view of Scripture was their view of their interpretation of Scripture, right? The only thing as high as their view of Scripture is their view of their own interpretation of Scripture. But when we put the Bible as high as it ought to be, in the highest place, higher than even our own interpretations of Scripture, then when we get our interpretations wrong, We can be corrected by others in our community who come alongside us and show us where we've gotten wrong and appealing to the scripture that we all hold true. When we set the Bible above ourselves and even our interpretations, it puts our interpretations in in their proper place. Final objection. Maybe you're thinking this morning, yeah, I get that there's a danger in thinking too little of the Bible. But isn't there also a danger in thinking too much of the Bible, like making it an idol, like We're only supposed to worship God, but what about people that, like, worship the Bible, right? Isn't that a problem? Is this high view of Scripture laying out today, this is equivalent to idolatry, bibliolatry? And that sounds wise enough. Actually, when I was preparing this sermon, jotting down my initial brainstorm, I thought that this was going to be kind of a point that I made. Like, hey, we don't want to think too high, we don't want to think too low of the Bible, But actually, man, the last few weeks in my study, I've actually become convinced that um, thinking too highly of the Bible isn't the danger that I thought it would be. Let me give an illustration that maybe will help us understand. Um, before I ever met my wife, um, we we knew about each other but never met. I wrote her a letter. And I'm an intense person, um, so this letter was pretty intense. It was along the lines of, hey, I... Um, I'm interested in pursuing you, but I'm not interested in it being just like a casual thing. I'm interested in exploring whether we are going to be headed for marriage or not. Um, so if you're in for that, awesome. If not, I understand, but I don't have time. So um, so I wrote that letter, sent it to her, like a real letter, like in the mail, um, and waited for the reply, right? I figured it would take a few days, to get there, get back. So after like five days, I was like sprinting to the mailbox multiple times every day to see if a letter had come back, right? Because I was like, I really want her to write back. I hope that she wasn't scared off by this. Did I do the right thing? Did I not do the right thing? She's only 19, so uh, this is probably a little overwhelming for her. She's not going to write back. Oh, maybe she will. So I really wanted to read this letter. I just wanted it so badly to get a letter from her, right? Um, Eventually it came, and then, you know, that's the story. But um, what if you came to me, though, and said, Tim, that's such a shame. That's such a shame that you loved that letter more than you loved Sarah. Right? Like, it's just pen and ink. Why did you care so much about it? Why were you so desperate and yearning for it? That's, just, that's idolatry. That's, that's putting a letter above her. Isn't it evident that that's a foolish Pushback to what I was doing, right? The only reason that I loved that letter, um, to use that word very loosely for people who had never met each other, is because of my love for Sarah, right? The only reason I yearned for that letter is because I yearned to be in a relationship with Sarah. Um, My love for the letter wasn't in competition with my love for her, it was actually driven by my love for her. Um, And it's no different, I think, with this love letter that God has written us, this 66 book love letter. Um, if these are God's words to us, then how we respond to this book is how we respond to God himself. In other words, and the Bible talks this way consistently, to revere God's word is to revere God himself. To praise God's word, as we saw in Psalm 119, is to praise God himself. To obey or disobey God's word is to obey or disobey God himself. To submit to God's word is to submit to God himself. To trust God's word is to trust God himself. He's so identified with his word in the scriptures that what we do to the scriptures, we do to God. So hey, the bottom line question today is just this. Do you stand over the Bible or does the Bible stand over you? That's really what it comes down to. We've got this letter from God written to us. Is your posture that the Bible is down here and I stand over it and I look at it from my position as judge over it, and I pick which parts I like, which parts I don't like, which parts I'm going to follow, which parts I'm not really going to follow, which parts I'm going to pay attention to, which ones I'll ignore? Or is your posture toward the Bible that the Bible stands over me? And I may not always understand it. It may be confusing and frustrating to me sometimes, but when it comes down to it, I'm going to bend my knee and submit to whatever God says in this word. Which one is it for you? We've seen today that Jesus has the highest possible view of Scripture that someone could have. If anybody had the right to stand over the Bible and judgment over it, it would have been Jesus, right? But he didn't. Even Jesus didn't stand over the Bible. He let the Bible stand over him, and he submitted to it and obeyed it to the letter. How much more us flawed, finite, sinful Christians should we be letting the Bible stand over us. If we're Jesus' disciples, that will increasingly be our attitude toward it. That our preferences, our feelings, our thoughts, even down to our emotions, that we'd be seeking to subject them to make them fall in conformity with what we read in the scriptures. I want to finish with just addressing just a few problems, just one sentence each, uh, that might hold you back from having this kind of view towards Scripture, that I want to submit under it gladly, joyfully. I want want to write a poem to Scripture. I love God's Word so much. Some things that hold us back from that. Maybe for you, it's that the Scripture's confusing. If that's you this morning, if the Scriptures confuse you, just first of all, remember that you're not alone. Peter, who walked with Jesus and wrote some of these Scriptures, said in the Scriptures themselves, hey, Paul's letters, they are Scripture. But I got to be honest, they are sometimes hard to understand, right? Have you ever read that? Um, So it's not wrong of you to be confused by Scripture. Ask somebody to help you understand it. Maybe you've been burned by misuse of the Bible, and that's why you don't love it. If that's you, friend, don't let Satan win by getting you to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, right? Um, Just because the Bible's been misused doesn't say anything bad about the Bible any more than The person who uses a hammer to commit homicide says something bad about hammers, right? Maybe you're embarrassed by certain parts of the Bible. Just encourage you, schedule some time with one of us. There's people here at this church, myself included, who would love to sit down with you and walk you through some of the passages that are hard to understand and hard to swallow. And maybe there's some background or some understanding that could help you see that God's design in the Scriptures is really, really good. Maybe you just find this boring, If that's you this morning, um, those who weep at the word, those who write poems to the word because they love it so much, tend to be the people who spend the most time in it. And I, I don't think that's a coincidence, right? Unless we find God boring, which is a different sort of issue, then if we spend enough time in this word, it'll eventually grab our hearts because it's God himself revealing himself to us, making himself known to us personally on these pages. And finally, if you're, if you're one of those who's frustrated by so many conflicting perspectives and interpretations of the scriptures, and it's just all so overwhelming, everybody thinks differently about it, there's no hope in being able to gain anything from these scriptures, um, don't forget that we get to do this together in community. And believe it or not, over 2,000 years of the church reading this Bible together, um, There's been consensus on the core of what this scripture teaches. That core has been outlined in the creeds that have been accepted by Christians of all stripes for 2,000 years now. Um, We've had agreement on that. We're actually going to recite one of those creeds in just a moment after I pray. um, As a reminder that this word, the core teachings of this word are clear and have been clear to God's church as the Spirit has led us in them for 2,000 years. But friends, whatever objections you come here with, whatever struggles you come here with today with regard to God's word, whatever you do, read this book daily, slowly, intentionally, habitually. Don't read it for its own sake. Read it to be like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be like you in every way. We want you to shave off the rough edges of our lives the ways we don't look like you. We want not just our actions, but our thoughts and our attitudes and our affections to be increasingly aligned with yours so that we love the things you love and hate the things that you hate. And Lord, as such, we even want to have the same attitude toward the scriptures that Jesus articulated when he was on this earth, and that he modeled as he walked this earth. Lord, create in us a love for your word, driven by a love for you. And as we open up the pages of this book, even if it's been a while, even if it's feeling dry uh, at the moment, Lord, do a supernatural work and meet with us on the pages of this word like you promised to do. Show yourself to us, in a way that we behold your glory, your majesty, and your beauty, and we're captivated by what we see there. In Jesus' name, amen.